0: Welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You've probably heard that the Delta variant may send us back into lockdown, but what about Lambda? Dr. Jason Kindrichuk lays that out for us. Dating is everyone's nightmare, but it doesn't have to be, according to podcast host, Lindsay Metzlar, who educates on everything from red flags to giving someone a chance and when to say, I love you. When the relationship doesn't work out though, what's next? Matthew Frey explains why it's important to be kind to your ex. The Sunday Night Health Show podcast starts now. I am really happy Italy won. They deserve that. Good evening and welcome to the Sunday Night Health Show, the show that educates everyone about sexual health, how it relates to overall health, making your relationships the best they can be. I am your host, Maureen McGrath, a registered nurse, nurse continence advisor, and sexual health educator. If you would like to be a part of the program, please give me a call. The number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's one 877 9898 You can text me there as well or email me in confidence, and hopefully I'll get to be reading some of your emails tonight, at com. Although we cover a variety of health subjects, this show is not replacement for a visit to your doctor virtually or by phone. So make sure you... Head on over to see your doctor for anything that ails you. Tonight in the program, we are talking about uh, love and relationships quite a bit and also some of the more common reasons that people seek out therapy for their sex lives and relationships. Also going to be talking about back pain and what that might mean and what that might not mean either. I'm um, also going to be talking a little bit about... Why it's important to be kind to your exes when the relationship falls asunder. But although we have lots to talk about, we, of course, are have want to get on with this subject, the subject we discuss basically every week with none other than Dr. Jason Kinderchuk. And right now, we are going to be heading over to talk about our health. And now, Maureen's Health Headline. There it is. It happens every Sunday night where Dr. Jason Kinderchuk joins us on the line. He is all things viruses, including the coronavirus. Good evening, Dr. Kinderchuk. How are you from the University of Manitoba?
1: Uh, I'm doing good, Maureen. We're, we're picking up in heat again this week. So just trying to prepare for, uh, for, for the onslaught of that.
0: Oh my goodness. Yes, that's always uh, an additional challenge on top of everything else uh, that you're doing. Um, I want to get straight to the Delta virus. We see that the U.S. has opened up pretty significantly in most places. Canada is opening up across the country. We're still seeing some outbreaks, Dawson Creek, to name one. Uh, we're seeing fewer deaths and even zero deaths in Ontario in the last 24 hours, I believe. Um, but why must we be concerned about the Delta var- variant?
1: Yeah, it's a great question, right? And certainly, we're watching, uh, you know, the situation unfold in in both the Isra- in, uh, Israel and the UK with uh, with what they've been dealing with with Delta. And, and what we're seeing is we're kind of two different sides of the pandemic. the The first side we're seeing is that people that are vaccinated. The vaccines are are holding up fairly well, right? we've We've certainly seen some regional differences, but by and part, uh, we are not seeing any any severe disease or hospitalizations in those that have bought, gotten both of their vaccine doses. so that that's great. The problem is though, is that underneath that we have a you know a fairly large contingent of the population that is still unvaccinated. So even if you consider you know twenty percent or twenty five percent of Canadians as not yet having any vaccine doses, that's a pretty large number of people. We're talking about millions of people that have not gotten any immunity yet. So we now get into this position of saying, okay, what do we do? Because you have a variant that is moving faster than the prior variant, which was already moving very fast, and you have, uh, you know, unfortunately, uh, a, a, you know, a, a, an unvaccinated group of people that that virus is going to run rampant through. So I think you're you're seeing you know a lot of um, you know discussion on on how to balance this between opening things back up, but also trying to ensure that that people are protected.
0: And there's a higher infectivity uh, of the Delta, which could that have an impact on the threshold needed for herd immunity?
1: Well, that's the problem, right? So when we go back to herd immunity, I mean, it's, it's complex, right? You start adding in all these extra variables. But one of the biggest is the idea of, first of all, transmissibility, right? So as basically the virus becomes more transmissible, what happens is that you now continue to increase that R-naught value, which is basically how many people get infected from one infected person. And that drives up your herd immunity threshold. So we're not dealing with, you know, the, the two to four R-naught that we were dealing with last year. Now we're, you know, in some cases, you know, the theories of up to six to nine, depending on the situations. And that pushes that, that percentage higher and higher. So, I think it's, it's difficult to balance anything just on a herd immunity threshold, aside from just saying to people, we need to get as high as we can.
0: Right. And and prior to the Delta variant, we were kind of, people were kind of throwing around the number 70%. um, But given the higher infectivity rate of Delta, are we looking at 80 to 90%? um? Yeah.
1: Yeah. So, so say if if we take, for example, you know, say an R naught of six, you know, so that's, you know, one minus one over six. So, now we're dealing with, you know, like the 80, you know, 80 plus percent, somewhere in that range for, for herd immunity. Um, and of course, that changes from region to region. That's why it's so difficult to establish what herd immunity looks like because of these differences, even within a province between communities. But certainly by, you know, by and part, you know, across the communities of, of the world, it looks like, yeah, we're, we're inching closer and closer to that, that 80 plus, you know, uh, percentage
0: Absolutely. I just want to give the, the number out again for anybody out there listening who may have a question about vaccines or or the variant or any anything else that uh, is on your mind. The number to call for Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is one 877 9898 That's 1-877-399-9898. Uh, I, you know, more and more I hear, and probably because I'm in the healthcare field of unvaccinated people, who have died of uh, COVID-19. And, and in fact, I know of a family who's been impacted. The husband is 44. The wife was 42. They both got COVID. Both of them were not vaccinated. They have three children and the mom actually passed away from COVID this past week. This is a very real thing. You know, I mean, I think there's a lot of people out there that still believe that COVID is not real, or the vaccines are going to give you a third eye, or lots of uh, myths around um, the whole vaccine, I think in part because it was politicized. Uh, are people's lives still in danger in general? Or, you know, that's somebody that is connected to me, you know, in a, you know, once removed, uh, the person in their yeah. um, 40s. But, um, you know, you hear about them, the cases through the media. But, you know, is this something that people should really be worried about? Well, we should be concerned, right? And I think the biggest
1: part is when we look at vaccine equity, even within our own country, we certainly see an unequal distribution of of vaccination. So you get in this position of saying, are people unvaccinated because they are reluctant to get vaccinated or is it because they simply have not been able to get access? And that now puts us in a position of saying those people likely are in a higher risk category based on their demographics. Then you look across the globe, you look at what's happening in Africa and certainly other, other uh, you know, kind of resource-limited settings of the world. It's shocking. West Africa is seeing an increase. South Africa is getting hit very hard right now. Uh, mm-hmm. South America has been hit obscenely hard. It's, it's difficult to watch because we know globally that, that this is certainly not even close to being over yet.
0: Exactly. And Australia has had a very difficult time. And for a wealthy country like oh. Australia, I mean, they're back in lockdown.
1: Well, and I think the thing to consider with Australia is that they they had a very good policy up front with being able to try and and get non pharmaceutical interventions uh, in mm-hmm. place and restrictions and lockdowns done, but they're now dealing with low vac- uh, vaccine supply, and that right. is certainly starting to rear its ugly head, unfortunately.
0: It certainly is, and is this something you uh, could see could see happening to Canada or the U.S.? Um, I and I realize they may it. be two different answers there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> no, no, you know what? I, I think we're in a good position, right? The, the U.S. certainly, they're, they're, they have a higher percentage of people seemingly that are reluctant to get vaccinated. That's mm-hmm. very different from having not enough supply. Canada, I think, is doing very well. we got to get second doses up and running. Um, but we still have to try and figure out how to hit those, uh, you know, those communities where, where we don't see any uptake. And that's going to exactly. be a, a little bit of a long-term goal.
0: I have Sean on the line from Chilliwack, British Columbia. Hello, Sean.
1: Hi, how are you guys doing tonight?
0: Good, thanks. thanks. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing well. Um, I just wanted to ask about the people who are hesitant in taking the vaccine and stuff like that. What are your thoughts on some of the treatments that are going about? I mean, when it was all Trump. uh, There's a bunch of conspiracy around that. But ivermectin, I've heard, has been a really successful treatment in regards to the coronavirus. What are your thoughts on some of those treatments? Oh, yeah, it gets difficult, right? So. So, ivermectin uh, certainly has been, you know, kind of up and down in, in terms of reporting for the better part of probably about 12 months. The problem with ivermectin is that even with clinical trial data, we haven't got anything conclusive, right? So, with vaccines across the board, it was there were, the results were undoubtedly conclusive that that there were there was a massive benefit for ivermectin. Depending on who you're talking to if you do stats a certain way maybe there is some benefit if you do stats in the way that most people seem to do them for for clinical trials there's no benefit and i think that's where we get in this position of saying okay do we go with anecdotes and and get you know drug delivered out to people and hope that it's efficacious and we don't see any concerns or do we go by leading with science and waiting to see what you know what the uh, you know randomized controlled uh, clinical trials tell us and whether or not there's any benefit. So I, I think we're still in a position we're not going to see it being being authorized or, or approved anytime soon. And that's the unfortunate reality of dealing with antivirals. It's not easy to uh, to, to find a dosage that works or, or a route of delivery that works or a timing that works. They're just notoriously difficult. Uh,
0: and and correct right, me then? if I'm wrong, but ivermectin is not an antiviral drug, and it's also not been approved um, by the FDA for preventing or Treating COVID nineteen, it's actually used to uh, treat parasitic worms or um, head lice. is the other one,
1: yeah, but it, it, it's in hard guard for dogs. I mean, it's, it, it works well with any parasitic. There's been some data to suggest maybe any parasitics might have some, you know, some antiviral effect through a secondary mechanism. But that, again, we're, we're dealing with a lot of evidence that still has yet to be, you know, kind of I think fully understood.
0: Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Dr. Jason Kinderchuk is my guest. He's an assistant professor, holds a Canada research chair in the Department of Medical Microbiology and Infectious Diseases at the University of Manitoba. He has all things virus, including Ebola and coronavirus. Thanks so much for staying on the line, Dr. Kinderchuk. Absolutely. So it's been said that, uh, the virus, um, as we know, it mutates and there are different variants and, and we have another one coming down the pike. Tell us about the latest.
1: Yeah. I, you know, I, I always feel bad talking about it because I know everybody's exhausted. And I certainly am, um, <laughs> but you know, this is part of the problem, right? We, we want to get things under control because of this exact reason. So uh, in Peru in, in late 2020, um there there was a new variant that was identified called the lambda variant. It has some mutations that potentially suggest that it that it might have some uh, some different characteristics than what the, the you know the prior circulating strains have had. Um, and it's picked up quite a bit in regards to its overall proportion amongst cases. So you know it basically it emerged, and by you know this point now we're seeing it in uh, you know I think it's like eighty uh, percent or thereabouts in terms of total cases uh, in in Peru. Um, it's certainly it's spread out to other countries. I think 29 other countries now have identified it yet. Um, it's a variant of interest. So we don't, we, there's some data to suggest that it may be, uh, you know, something we we need to be concerned about in regards to transmissibility, but we don't have that direct evidence yet. Um, but, you know, we, we've we been in this case before with Delta as well as India. I remember when that emerged and we had uh-huh. you know some suggestion that it might be something to keep a watch for. And, and, uh, and lo and behold, this is where we are. So, I, you know, I, I would caution everybody, again, with all the vaccines, with certainly the mRNA vaccines, what we've seen so far has been good, sustained protection against severe disease across all the variants. And so the likelihood is for Lambda, we will see the same thing. The bigger concern for us is that, again, we are seeing another variant that has emerged, resource-limited setting. We don't have a lot of vaccine coverage. And without that, we're going to continue to see transmission events and continue to see emergence of different variants, so part of of our job is to get things under control globally, so we can also get things under control locally.
0: And once again, if you have a question for the doctor, the number to call is one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. That's one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. I have a question for you. I wanted to ask you, Doctor Kinderchuk, about the booster uh, yeah. shots. What are your feelings on uh, people, especially people who are at risk? <laughs> Um, maybe who have cancer or other diseases. Yeah. Um, what do you think?
1: Well, it's gotten difficult, right? Because Pfizer this weekend, had, well, last week it said that there was this likelihood that people need a third booster. And now we're hearing about this meeting tomorrow behind closed doors. We still haven't seen any data to suggest why they're rec- recommending a third dose. I think for people certainly that are immunocompromised and, and, and people that certainly are in higher risk groups, um, I think the, the there is an understanding that, yes, they, they likely had a lower um, uh, you know immune response to those first two doses and now that we're seeing more variants emerging and, and certainly with Delta maybe it is warranted to get those people vaccinated with or boosted with a third dose but I would also say again that we're dealing with a global population in a lot of places that have not seen really any vaccinations yet so it becomes this question of saying, is it better to use you know, those doses for third doses across the board in in you know, resource plentiful settings or to get doses uh, distributed to areas that, that are undergoing high transmission rates right now?
0: Right. Interesting. And Israel is offering a third shot of the Pfizer vaccine to uh, adults at risk. Um, I, I've got another question for you as well. What if you have a question for the doctor quickly one eight seven seven three nine nine and ninety eight ninety eight for the, uh the u s didn't approve AstraZeneca, but a lot of Canadians got AstraZeneca, and it was advised to mix and match, get a Pfizer or an, a, one of the mRNA vaccines but the yep. u s isn't accepting that, so some people are getting AstraZeneca and then two Pfizers, for example.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, again, we're, we're getting back to this idea of saying, you know, we, how do we do this from a global standpoint where uh-huh. we're ensuring that, you know, the, the rules and regulations for, uh, you know, for, for movement are, are equivalent across the board. I think you're going to see some sorting out of that over the next couple of months. I think people are, are a little bit reactionary right now. The the AstraZeneca and, and single dose, the mRNA vaccines have held up very well in terms of the immune response data we, we've seen. We just don't have a lot of effectiveness data yet from population data. But that, that will come in uh, hopefully in the next couple of months.
0: Well, thank you so much for all of your information as usual. And uh, I'm sure lots will happen between now and next <laughs> Sunday <laughs> when we talk to you it again. There's never a <laughs> dull week. Thank you so much, Dr. Kindrachuk. Really appreciate it.
2: Thanks, all you. right.
0: Welcome back to the Sunday Night Health Show. I'm wondering if you ever wondered when was the right time to say, I love you in your relationship. Lindsay Metzler joins me. She's the host of We Met at Acme, an Apple podcast, which is a podcast about things we don't talk about, but we all want to know about. She's a native New Yorker and a millennial dating aficionado. Good evening, Lindsay. How are you? Hi, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. I am a huge fan of yours. I love your work. I love the podcast. I love oh, all of you. your advice and wisdom on Instagram as well. Thank uh, you. Yeah, it is awesome and it's much needed. So so this is a question um that came up recently around a uh, as we open up and have more Uh, conversations around the table, but that somebody had told somebody else after three weeks of dating that they loved them. And so there were lots of opinions about this particular (laughs) um, three words and whether it was right or whether it was okay, or whether it was real or whether it was just another shiny object or somebody was attracted to the wealth. Um, So what are your thoughts on, is there a right time to say, I love you when you just start dating somebody? Or is that something that may take a while?
2: It's such a great question. I actually kind of cringed when you said that somebody said it after three weeks because (laughs) I actually have this theory. It's called the three-week, three-month, three-year theory. And after three weeks, you know if you like somebody enough to keep seeing them. But it's only after at least three months that you know if you actually love them. Because three weeks is like you're so in a lust period. I mean, you could say I love you, but you're speaking from, like, lust only, in my opinion. Adam, what do you think?
0: I, I agree with you. I think that was that was kind of my contribution to the conversation. It was more about the release of endorphins and all of the excitement and, you know, and it's all fantastic in the first three weeks, hopefully. Um, and so it may be that you love the time you're having or, you know, you love all the excitement in your life, but can you actually decide that you love somebody that quickly? But then again, there is something called love at first sight as well. And we hear about those stories or uh, recently a bride and groom that got married, the groom had met the bride when they were, he was 10 and she was seven or 12. Mm -hmm. And I think it was a little bit older than that. And he said, I'm going to marry her one day. Uh, And it was his friend's little sister and they just got married.
2: (laughs) I love that. And I do see that all the time and like, it is totally valid, but that's more likely the exception than it is the rule. And I feel like, you know, in my experience and friends of mine have experienced, like I had a girlfriend who the guy said, I love you, you know, three weeks in and he ended up like ghosting her a few weeks later. And so I take it as like a red flag almost. If somebody said, I love you that soon.
0: I couldn't agree with you more. Speaking of red flags, uh, on your podcast and in your on your Instagram, you talk about first date red flags. What are some of the first
2: date red flags, Lindsay? Oh, the list is so long, but I would say, um, <laughs> you know, the number one red flag, and this is a given, but is how they treat the wait staff. Obviously, you want somebody who is kind and courteous and tips well. And, um, another red flag is if they're talking badly about their exes or like calling them crazy because uh-huh. that's more of a reflection on them, I would say. Um, and 100%. Then, yeah. And then just like if they, if they try to take you home on the first date, you know, they're pressuring about anything or making you feel uncomfortable. I feel like that's definitely a red flag as well.
0: Absolutely. And if you have any questions for Lindsay, relationship and dating aficionado, the number to call is one 399 9898 That's one 399 9898 What do you think about telling someone that you love them? When do you think is too soon? Or do you think that Lindsay and I are completely wrong on that? Um, you know, also uh, speaking of social media, which is uh, critical in today's world, uh, but people present their perfect selves and their perfect lives on on social media. Everybody looks amazing, except for me. That's why I don't post my own picture <laughs> on there. <laughs> I am real. Anyway, and so that doesn't work. <laughs> but um, I just think, how do you look so good every single minute of the day? Um, and so looks are, you know, seemingly so important to people. Uh, but when beauty lies within. But... Uh, What are some things that are way more important than looks when it comes to dating?
2: I mean, everything looks fade, but like personality lasts forever. So you really want to find somebody who has a great sense of humor, but just like a sense of humor that aligns with yours. You don't want to be cringing at the jokes that they tell when you're in a public setting, like you want to be laughing. And so sharing that sense of humor is crucial And also just, like, sharing a set of values. I think it took me, like, 30 years probably to realize how important values were in a relationship. And, like, you can go for, like, the bad girl or the bad boy, but if they don't ultimately have, like, shared values with you, it's going to be really hard to, like, settle down with them and raise a family. And so I think that's really important. And then also just, like, how kind and, you know, thoughtful they are to you and how they treat you um, is so important, so much more important than looks And like anything superficial, like I know a lot of women especially can get caught up on like height and things like that. But ultimately, that really doesn't matter.
0: Yeah, when you're lying down, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. Um, Um, I, I love though, I, I don't want to forget, you know, how people treat waitstaff. I think that is just so important because some people can act so entitled or be so problematic, uh, in a restaurant. And that is definitely, uh, a red flag, but we put so much into looks, uh, these days that people can look past what is really important. Uh, and as you say, you know, well, look fade and love flies out the window quickly, Um but so you mentioned a little bit about um somebody who might uh or some women who focus on height. But uh so that makes me think about giving somebody a chance. That might not be your type. People have check checklists. They want somebody who's graduated from here, who drives this kind of a car, who has this type of a job. Um so they have their checklists and so they rule out a lot of people with these checklists. So What are Mm -hmm. some ways to give someone who isn't your type a chance?
2: I feel like we need to throw out this whole type thing. It's like you watch these shows like Love Island and Too Hot to Handle. And the first question when these people meet is like, so what's your type? What's your type? And it's so dumb because like your type should be personality traits and like that should be your type. So I think that you should like, if it hasn't been working for you when it comes to dating, it's, you know, the same thing is happening over and over again. Your relationships are ending the same way. You have to think Mm -hmm. outside of the box and you have to go for someone who, you know, if you're going for like the person who's mysterious or the person who you know is so cool and has clout and can get into the club like try going for somebody who is just a good person um like that is really the best type to have and that's like the real answer to like what's your type totally you want to feel safe and secure with
0: somebody i have a evelyn from winnipeg manitoba on the line with a question good evening evelyn hi maureen Hi, how are you? Uh, with regards, uh, I'm doing
3: okay. You know, the That's dating good. thing is is a is a hard thing to to swallow. However, I do believe that instead of the looks thing that you brought up, I do believe that a good conversationalist is better than anything else.
0: A, a good conversation list? Did you say? No, a conversational a conversationalist.
2: Yeah. Oh, I, a conversationalist, I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, you, a conversationalist.
2: Yeah, well, like yeah, because well, As, as, we, as we grow, as we grow over over
3: time, right? When you're younger, um, you know the superficial the superficial person changes and grows over time. So you know the conversationalist is an obvious you no know, brainer, right there. As we grow, over.
2: yeah, that's a great, a great point. point. I think intellectual stimulation is so important, and um, if anything's going to be on your "Quote unquote checklist." Um, it should be somebody that you can talk to like for hours on end. Yeah, you know, like you you're on the phone with that person,
3: and all of a sudden it's 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 uh, it's dawn, right? You know, you start talking to that person at midnight, and it's already it's already daytime already by the time you're finished with your conversation. It's sort of it's sort of uh, it's sort of a given. Not all men can pull it off, but women can. We're we're really good <laughs>
0: conversationalists.
3: True. We can Agreed. talk.
0: Maybe, maybe we can talk too much, and then they don't want to hear us. <laughs>
3: well, that's okay. That's okay too, because you know, a deaf ear is a good one too. You can after a while, but you know, the true. fact of the matter is, the fact of the matter is, we have to find interesting, interesting things to um, change the COVID curve because obviously, um, there's a lot of people out there that are talking too much COVID and not enough, and not not enough love, right? See, so there exactly. you
0: go. Not enough love, but something that was said before. I had a friend whose parents used to say, "She is going to have to marry somebody really old, really rich, and really deaf." <laughs> <laughs>
3: that's that's funny. That is really funny. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, so your friend, yeah. You, thanks a lot, Maureen, and thanks whoever your friend is
0: on the on the
3: line. Is that your is that your cohort? Your
0: sidekick for the evening, Lindsay Lindsay Metzlar. She's the host of We Met at Acme, an Apple podcast.
3: Oh, well, you know, she, she's awesome. And I'm glad, she, I'm glad you brought her on
0: today. All right. Oh, thanks right, for the call, thank Evelyn. I really appreciate
3: it. You're yeah, welcome. If you have any, You're welcome.
0: Yeah, you too. You any, thanks. Bye-bye. Or... Welcome back to the Sunday night health show. Maureen McGrath hosting this program for you. Lindsay Metzeler is my guest. She is the host of We Met at Acme, an Apple podcast about things we don't talk about, but we all want to know about. She's also a native New Yorker and a millennial dating aficionado. Thanks for staying on the line, Lindsay. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. And if you have a relationship question for Lindsay, the number to call is 1-877-399-9898. That's one 399 9898 Now you have an awesome podcast, as I've mentioned, and, um, one of them caught, many of them have caught my attention, but I remember my daughter when she came home from her friends one time, she was about five or six and she said, um, Mommy, they don't sleep in, they have separate bedrooms. And I was like, oh, great. You want some macaroni and cheese? (laughs) The parents don't sleep in the same bedroom. So when is it okay? You you say in your podcast, sometimes you need to sleep in separate beds.
2: Yeah. I mean, so I am not married, but I do live with my partner. Um, We haven't really needed to sleep in separate beds. But we don't have young kids. And I was recently speaking to fashion designer, Rebecca Minkoff, on our episode today that released. And she was explaining to me how having young kids, you know, they crawl into your bed at night. And so her and her husband decided they would sleep in separate beds for the time being while their kids are in this stage where they need to sleep in the bed with their parents so that at least one of them gets a good night's sleep at night. Um, so that is really where it stems from. And I don't think that it has to automatically mean that something's going wrong with your marriage as much as it just means, you know, that you want to get some sleep. I think a lot of times in life,
0: um, people find that they need to sleep in a, in a different bedroom, Uh, It may be, you know, not necessarily related to issues in the relationship, but it can be related to sleep apnea or, um, you know, somebody is snoring really loudly um, or the comfort of the bed, Um, you know, maybe one might prefer soft, the other prefers hard. Um, But I also think that sometimes the kids, and I know this is an issue, I'm going to be talking about this a little bit later on in the program. Um, you know, saying no to children is actually okay. (laughs) Like you don't have to sleep in our bed um, because, you know, that can actually, that's what is impacting the relationship is the fact that there's, you know, very, you know, it's uh, hard for parents to say no. I mean, I deal with that in my clinical practice all the time. Kids are sleeping in um, their parents' bed. And so the intimacy flies out the window Along with the looks, along with the love <laughs> along with a few other things um and so parenting brings a whole other uh challenge to an intimate life mm-hmm yeah it's it's very real, absolutely, absolutely so um you talk also a lot of uh patients in my clinical practice also feel that if a partner views porn, that's another big issue for people um that they've perceived this as cheating. Now you don't necessarily see it that way.
2: No, I could not disagree more. I think that porn is so healthy. Um, and I mean, there's a difference, right? Like if you're neglecting your partner sexually, but you're watching porn, that's not cool. But if your sexual needs are being continuously met by your partner and vice versa, and you're still enjoying watching porn or listening to audio porn every once in a while, then that's totally okay. And it's maybe something that you can watch together, even.
0: Absolutely, um, and you know it's it's one of those things that people have on their minds, but they don't necessarily talk about. They want to know about it as you say, but they don't necessarily talk about it. And I'm so glad that you're doing that on your podcast. Um, You also talk on your podcast uh, about codependency um, uh, and about that that human connection and when that human connection becomes unhealthy, when it delves into that codependency. Mm -hmm. uh, How how do you know when that happens? And how do you know when the relationship is over? I
2: think you know that it's becoming codependent when you kind of lose your your own sense of self and what you were interested in before the relationship began. And your happiness completely and utterly depends on what's going on in your partner's life as opposed to your own life. And if your partner's in a bad mood, then you are in a bad mood. and And it's just completely you know, dictated by, by another person instead of yourself. And I think, you know, a relationship is over when the bad starts to outweigh the good and you're fighting more than you're not fighting. And you just feel like, like, you know, all relationships are work, but if it's work 90% of the time, then Mm -hmm. there's gotta be something wrong there. Absolutely. And, and you
0: know, um, wh- one of the other podcasts, I'm just giving you a little, um, you listeners out there in radio land, unless any of you have a question, one eight seven seven three nine nine ninety eight ninety eight. 877 little tidbits of what uh, uh, Lindsay's podcasts are about, and they're extremely interesting. She has great guests. Um, but also, sometimes people have a hard time uh, with insight. They, they don't realize that they might be the problem. Um, how, how can we get people to realize that you might be the problem? It's not necessarily your partner.
2: So this really, and we've got about 30 seconds, Lindsay, sorry. (laughs) No, it's okay. You got to be self-aware. Like you got to go to therapy and you got to talk to somebody and figure your stuff out because that's really the only way to know who you are and, and what you're bringing to the table. Absolutely. I love that. You got to be self-aware
0: and you got to go to therapy. Great points to end on. Thank you so much, Lindsay. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. It's time for The Bedroom Bulletin. Joining me on the line, you've heard his voice before on the show. He does incredible work. He's been published in the New York Times. He is Matthew Frey. He's a relationship coach and writer who leans on the lessons of his failed marriage, his words, and divorce to help others avoid making the same mistakes he did. He got divorced because he left dishes by the sink. Frey writes about that and more on his blog, Must Be This Tall to Ride. Good evening, Matthew. How are you doing?
4: Hi Maureen, I'm well. Thank you so much for having
0: me. That's great. Thanks for coming on again. I appreciate it and and this subject is really dear to my heart. I see couples in my clinical practice and I cannot tell you how upsetting it is to see one person, usually the one with a bit more power perhaps, um, treat the other person poorly after the divorce and I think it is critical in terms of the health of the fractured family if you will that we treat people with respect even if we were married to them and no longer are. I heard a man recently talk about his ex-wife and how she had fallen on some hard times and he brought her back into the family home and his friends were giving him a hard time about bringing her back in. He said, she's the mother of my children. Of course I'm going to, she's having a rough go in life. And so they were shaming him, but I actually thought that's an attractive quality in a guy and he is easily fix (laughs) upable. Quite frankly, and you wrote a great blog about the seven life-changing benefits of treating my ex-wife well after divorce. So why is it important, Matthew?
4: Yeah, that guy's a hero. That's exactly what that situation calls for, and I feel exactly the same. And here's the thing. so, And and I'm going to come at this maybe a little bit differently than an angry and resentful husband. Although, to be fair, it would be disingenuous to not disclose that seven years ago, when I first got divorced, I was angry and resentful. I made it about me. I made it all about how she was quitting on the family and betraying me and abandoning me and, you know, me, 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 me. And then really my blog, all it's ever been for the past seven years is sort of trying to put the pieces together. I needed to understand, like, how my marriage had fallen apart because I perceived myself to be a decent guy. I know I married somebody that, you know, had the same interests that I had. And how did it fall apart? There was a true story there and I had to uncover it and I finally did. So it's maybe easier for me who has an enormous amount of regret and remorse and empathy today for my wife and what she went through because of how blind I was to these pains that she was experiencing because of my frequent invalidation. And my insistence that the, the way I filtered information and reacted to things were so much more, you know, legitimate than hers. That tended to be how those conversations went. You know, my truth was more true than her truth. It must have been how she felt. And that's terrible. So I come at this as she deserves post-marriage uh, and always will what she was owed in marriage. But I really think that's kind of true for anybody, no matter what, if you love your children. I mean, the most simple way to think about it from my perspective is, do you love your children? Check yes or no. Yes. Does having healthy parents that are their best selves provide these children the best chance for success? Check yes or no. Yes. Okay. You sabotaging their life and being like an anchor and a problem and a pain point obviously does not help your child's other parent be their best selves. So, I mean, it's like super black and white for me in that way, but it's it's even more nuanced than that. If I couldn't treat my wife well in, in, in marriage, can I at least show up in divorce so that my son gets behavior modeled for him that can serve him like later in life so that he isn't doomed to repeat, right, the quote unquote sins of my past so that he's not accidentally Thinking, this is how you treat people.
0: And I want to disclose, of course, you know, that women also ha- can treat their ex husbands poorly as well and may have the emotional hand up in that um, being able to manipulate a little bit better. But one thing you talk about in the blog is that uh, one of the benefits of treating your ex-wife well afterward is that you get to know things that you wouldn't have before and maybe freak out a bit less. And so if people are not treating someone well, naturally things aren't going to be shared. They're going to be withheld and that further fractures the family. Would you agree with that?
4: Absolutely. And what I think I meant specifically by that was the idea of one of the things that hurt so much and created so much fear in me when the divorce first happened and my son was four years old. It was, who's going to be in his life? I no longer get to influence what happens to him 50% of the time. And that was terrifying to me. It was so scary to me, this idea that some guy, right? And I was my worst self seven years ago. So the guys in my head were demons who were like, you know, womanizers and child abusers Mm but that she would be interacting with, which is insane. But that's what I was afraid of at the time. When you treat your partner well, your former partner, as it were, trust is earned and there's a healthy line of communication back and forth so that your partner's not whisking them off on a vacation 2,000 miles away for seven to 10 days and you have no earthly idea what they're doing or who they're with. My ex-wife and I have always uh, made sure that our son talked to the other parent when we were out of town on vacation, you know, like every day there's like a FaceTime conversation, always sending pictures and videos to one another. And that's the preferred method in my estimation. And that's also really selfish. How about we just treat people well for the sake of treating them well?
0: Exactly. You talk about healing much faster when you get to be you again and actually treat your ex-wife uh, with dignity and respect. And and many people hold on to those resentments in the marriage, especially after the divorce, and cannot get over that. That's one of the reasons that they treat people so poorly as opposed to, as you did, center it around your child.
4: Yeah, and I try to find a generous story there. Uh, again, I don't talk to a lot of people post-divorce, but I talk to a lot of people on the brink. I understand, in a way that I didn't seven, eight, nine, ten years ago, why wives and mothers are so angry after just years of not being heard, of being invalidated. Uh, I, I don't have to explain it to you. Certainly, they're angry and they feel righteously sort of like indignant about all this, and I get it. So when I'm talking to a, a wife that's not yet divorced, she's trying to just break through to her husband who she's furious with. I am always trying to disassociate a lot of these things that kill marriage, disassociate them from character. I really don't believe we are bad people intentionally hurting one another. I think we are well-intentioned people hurting each other accidentally in our blind spot. And I think there is a generous version of these stories that makes sense and that if we can all like embrace this idea that from the other human's perspective, what they thought and felt at the time they thought and felt it is maybe not such an insane idea if we choose curiosity. We can get to a place where we don't feel so angry. And that's how I had to get there in order to treat my wife well post-divorce was I had to understand her version of the story. And as soon as I did, it occurred to me, I deserved everything I had coming. She did the right thing by removing herself from a perpetually unhealthy situation. And uh, there's a lot of peace And a lot of personal development that happens when you come to some of those realizations.
0: Sounds like those are some of the greatest gifts. And, you know, I just want to say hurt people hurt people. And so it's always helpful to process the pain. And when we do that through crying, talking, whatever, we release some of that pain. Matthew, awesome as usual. Thank you so much. Uh, What's the best way for people to read some of your phenomenal work?
4: Uh, My blog is Must Be This Tall to Ride. Dot com and you can also find me every Thursday at the Good Men Project.
0: Fantastic. And of course, that infamous New York Times article as well about uh, the great work you do coaching dads to prevent divorce. So important for the family. Matthew, thanks again for joining me and we'll definitely get you back because I think you've got a lot to say and I like what you have to say.
3: Thank you
4: so much, Maureen.
0: Thanks for listening to the Sunday Night Health Show podcast. You can subscribe, rate, or review on your favorite podcast app. And if you've got a question about your health, the nurse is always in. So email me, nursetalk at hotmail.com, and I just might answer your question anonymously, of course, on next week's show. For now, have a happy and healthy week.